Hello and thanks for tuning in. This is the radio ministry of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please open up your Bibles and join us. Here's Pastor Dennis Helton. What are you motivated by is my question. Well, there's a most important motivation that we would have. And it's called the love of Christ. Christ's love for us is the greatest motivation. Whatever we think, whatever we speak, whatever we do, whatever we decide on things really should be based on the fact of Christ's love for us. And that's a major factor in how we live our lives. Um, why you do what you do is it because you're motivated by the love of Christ. It's ever-present, ever-abiding, ever-exerting. It's a kind of power that drives us, the very love of Christ. And so the subject of today, as we continue in this exposition of uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, is dealing with the constraining, substitutionary love that Christ has for us. And we're kind of in the uh, final stanza that uh, started uh, back a chapter ago or or so, dealing uh, with kind of like a great hymn, in a sense, of the ministry, the glorious gospel that we carry in uh, these jars of clay. And, of course, he described this in the preceding chapters. And, of course, the very final stanza is beginning right where we're at today. And we want to acknowledge the vast depth here, the, even the difficulty and the importance of this passage and it is just full of great things, dealing with doctrine and then practice of it. But So this closing portion is powerful. It's uh, about as powerful as any passage can be on the substitutionary atonement. So that's where we're, we're heading to. You remember last week we dealt with pleasing the Lord and uh, having our ambition and realizing that we face the examination of the judgment seat uh, of Christ and knowing that, that that's a solemn event that is ever before us he discusses motives of ministry and motives of our lives and that's where we're at here today so the, the context really sets all this up as he has stated we are at home in the body and uh, when we are at home in the body we are absolutely absent from the Lord and uh, one day we want to be present with the Lord. And that's what Paul was very confident and uh, he knew as he looked forward to that day. And during that time we are to have our ambition to please the Lord. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. Not be led by just emotions. But as we walk by faith we count on him and everything and no matter what the circumstances we want to be well pleasing for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and we'll be recompensed for our deeds in the body whether they be good or actually worthless and that's where we left off last week in the light of that solemn event the motives here are discussed for ministry so uh, why don't we stand for a moment as we uh, take up our Bibles. Joyous thing to do. This is where all of our worship heads to anyway, isn't it? 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we have sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this great passage that you have given us. And may we have our hearts set right upon you. And may this word of God speak to us this morning as we learn further what you have for our lives here and for later. And we realize what you have done in the past. What an example of love was exhibited for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll go to uh, verse 11 of our chapter 5. Leaving off in the light of the solemn event of the judgment seat, here are the motives now for ministry for life. He says, therefore, and again, Paul continues to put the therefores there. Because of this, because of the judgment seat, in light of that, knowing the fear of the Lord. So they knew about that. And so we talk about the fear of the Lord for a moment. Word fear, uh, you might be familiar with uh, the word phobia. And of course, the Greek word for fear is phobos. And so in that case, uh, it's equal in that sense. What is the biblical sense? And in, in the context here, what is about? The, uh, the, uh, the apostle definitely had a genuine fear of the Lord. That is, that he had a sense of awe, a reverence, a respect. He had no fear in the sense of how he was accepted. He knew he was accepted in the Lord and the Beloved. And he already said in verse 8 that we're of good courage. We know that our future is in the presence of the Lord, right? That's established. Uh, he really had no natural fear. The only fear is the natural fear of the judgment seat in light of Christ as he will examine our life and our deeds, our thoughts, our words, and he will reward us in the light of what we did here in the body while here on earth. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? And that's what we talked about last week. That's why you can go right into verse 11 and see how it follows with that. You see, the Bible is not a series of disconnected events. Oh, I think I'll put this here even though it's not related, and to put this here. The Bible is actually one story. The one story is woven all through. It's about the redemption, the redemption story. It's about Christ. He's at the heart of the matter, and here he is uh, again. And so as he weaves things together, it all makes sense. 
It all ties together. So it goes from the judgment seat then to what are our motivations? Are we motivated by, first of all, the fear of the Lord? And that's that awe and respect. That's where it uh, starts. Paul held God in a high esteem. He held him in awe, held him in honor, held him in respect. And we do that daily. We do that here Sunday mornings when we pray, when we sing. We are here to worship God and Him alone. That's why we're here. When we come here, we're here to hear the Word of God. We're here to focus upon Him and give Him the awe and the respect that He deserves. We are to realize, realize His holy glory. And so that's why this fear is brought up. Give Him the honor that is due. Just a few scriptures dealing with this, and we'll move on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, He has a, Therefore, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Fear of God. There, there's a motivation there, the fear of God. It's desiring to be holy. It's cleansing ourselves, right? If you go back to Job chapter 28, verse 28, Job is before the Psalms. Psalms is in the middle of your Bible. Job 28, 28 says this. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. You want wisdom? Fear God. Amen. And to depart from evil is understanding. So that's a, a right view of fearing God. Let's go to Psalm 19, the very next book over. Psalm 19, 9. Psalm 19, all of it is about the Word of God. Verse 9, he compares the Word of God to the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The fear of the Lord is clean. It's perfect. It's a good thing to awe, to reverence, to respect Him. Chapter 22, verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify Him. And stand in awe of Him. All you descendants of Israel. All God's people where it all comes to. Praise Him. If you fear the Lord, praise God. Take the opportunity to praise Him. You couldn't be at a better place. Psalm 111, verse 10. It's all about fearing God in the right way, isn't it? Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want wisdom? Fear God. Awe Him. Be in awe. Respect Him. A good understanding. Have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Go to Proverbs. Next book over. Chapter 1, verse 7. Dealing with the fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, but believers love God's truth. Now, I added that, but what it's saying there, that's what the 
first part is saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Knowing Him. And that's where it starts. Praising Him. Honoring. Chapter 8, verse 13. Very much related. Keep getting this wisdom and knowledge. 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. If you fear God, you hate evil, right? If you love God, you hate sin. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. So, again, that's what the fear of the Lord does. Chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So, again, it's wisdom. It's knowledge. It's understanding. And it starts with the fear of the Lord. Turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. We're still dealing with what is fearing God. And so in just a few amount of verses, we get a little bit of a picture of this this fear that is a good thing. Not being scared of God. That's not the idea. Look what happens with the proper fear. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The church is prospering, wasn't it? It's a good thing. This is what happens when the church fears God. You have worship, you have adoration, you have service, you have peace, you have comfort, grace, everything that goes with who God is, the fear of the Lord. So we go back to our second Corinthians, move on to the next phrase here in chapter 5. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, does that help a little bit? We could spend a whole message on that, but that's not our theme this morning. But that's where it starts. If you want wisdom, (laughs) the fear of the Lord is where it's at, right? We persuade men. We persuade men. Now, he gets into really about his integrity here. And you you would normally think that this would be about winning the lost. And many expositors do say that that's what it means. But in our context, I'd have to differ this time. Because it says we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest... Also in your consciences. It is good to persuade people of the truth. And that's what Paul did. But in this sense, even though it's natural to persuade men to respond to the gospel, what you have here is he's having to persuade men in Corinth, in the Corinthian church, of his integrity. He's been challenged all through this letter. And that's what this letter is about. He has been challenged about his integrity and that he's not bringing all truth and he's not who he says he is. His leadership is being assaulted. It's being pummeled. It's not about personal self-interest. It is about Christ. And he wants to make sure that the believers in Corinth know that. People are trying to undermine the very man that Paul was and his message. They're undermining the confidence 
in Paul. If they can start stripping that away and people start believing a lie and taking them away from truth, as the criticism just kept rolling in, and as they kept saying, hey, he claims to be an apostle, we say he's not. That be the case. The truth is at stake here. Because that's what Paul is there for, to preach the truth. And the whole letter is a defense of the integrity. At the same time, Paul doesn't like to brag about himself. He never commends bragging and boasting. I think he's a man of true humility. But he wants people to believe what he preaches. If what he preaches is truth and the people can't believe him because they've heard certain things, no matter what comes out of his mouth, how is it going to convince them even though it is God's truth? So he has to make this message believable. And that's why he keeps stressing this. So he says, we persuade men, but we're made manifest to God. Okay, he says, we want to persuade you that what we're saying is true. And God knows who he is. And that's what he's saying here. It's made manifest to God. God knows. God knows his heart. God knows the very thinking that he have has. His conscience is activated by the very Holy Spirit who lives in him. And he's informed of God. God knows that what he is doing is right. God knows my integrity. And I hope that we're made manifest in your conscience as well. That you would know what God knows. And so he says, as he starts with this fear of the Lord, he wants to make sure that they're fearing God. And he says, I really hope that you know what I'm about. That what this is is true. And so we move to the next motivation, and it's the church. He has a great concern for the church there in Corinth. The church is everywhere. And so his concern is brought out. The church is under attack. False teachers. And they are firing their weapons against him as he is the target. Weapons being words that they put forth their arrows but he says look you've got to defend me you knew whenever I came here I preached the gospel I was concerned for your salvation and all of that information that you have you're going to find yourself overrun with error if you believe those lies you have to believe me he was so concerned for the Unity of the church, if you look in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians here, go back a little further, back near the end of the letter. And he says, for I'm afraid, and now here, here's a fear here, but I'm really concerned about this, that perhaps when I come I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife and jealousy and angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. That's what he's afraid of. He didn't want to see that. 
He wanted the church to be united. Ephesians and Colossians, he has the same kind of thought about the church. And we know that Paul is not commending himself. He's commending the very truth of the Word of God. As we see in 2 Corinthians 3, 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? Right? I don't need a letter of commendation. Right? In chapter 10, verse 18. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he whom the Lord commends. And so, his concern. And so we, we go to, as we're in verse 12, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. And of course, uh, he goes on and says, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart, that you'd be proud of us in, in the fact that they would have confidence in his spiritual integrity, that you'd be proud not in the sense of a boastful pride. We know Paul is not about pride at all, right? So in that sense, he uses that word in a, in a good way. We want you to be confident in us that what we say is true. And he has a statement that he makes here so that you'll have an answer for those. An answer. He says, you should be commending me. Why aren't you standing up for me, Paul is saying. You should be given an answer to those who take pride in appearance. So he talks about proud. And then he comes along and talks about this pride of, of the other ones, the false teachers. The pride would be like the, the pharisaical pride. You remember them? The outward type of religiosity that they had. And it was in appearance. So they had a confident view of who he was. They were supposed to have that. And yet the prideful ones who were charging against Paul, he says, you give an answer to them. He says, protect yourselves. Stand up for truth. Give an answer to it. Look in Proverbs 27, verse 2. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. So you don't really have to go around talking about yourself, Paul is saying. Let another one do that. Not your own lips. So he, he knows about the, the prideful aspect, even though in this letter he does have to stand up for it, but he's ultimately standing up for God's truth. What about these guys that had pride in appearance? Well, go back to Matthew 23 for a moment. moment. Verse 27. Remember this? Remember all the woes? Woe to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, 
but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So that reminds you of the kind of things that Jesus encountered as he went up against the religiosity of the day. And uh, the pride that they had in their being religious. So he has a concern for the church in verse 12. That's a motive, isn't it? That they would be edified. Verse 13, we get to another motive. It's called truth. Committed to God's truth. That's a great motivation, isn't it? For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Beside ourselves. For if we are beside ourselves. Kind of interesting word here. It's dealing with madness, craziness. Have you ever been called crazy because of your belief in Christ? Have people actually made fun of you because of your belief in Christ? Actually thought you were nuts, maybe even insane? Well, there's a word here about being beside ourselves. Exist to me. Ex or exit. Ex means out of. This to me is dealing with standing. To stand out of. To stand out of oneself. To be beside oneself. So therefore you get that word how it came from the original language here. It was because of the zeal, the passion that Paul had is because he did the things that he did and things that happened to him and a lot of people would say you really ought to quit if you continue on it you're foolish you're crazy you're nuts Paul had been stoned he continued on didn't he Paul had been beaten and whipped thrown into jail countless times shipwrecks and on and on and on and on it goes and people would be bound to say why would anybody keep doing that after this beating that he just took he's crazy he's out of his mind has it ever been told about you because of your stance of Christ he lost his mind He put himself in jeopardy every day, didn't he? I die daily. What's wrong with you, Paul? You're crazy. Well, Festus said that to Paul. In Acts 26, 24, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're beside yourself. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. Your great learning is driving you, what? Mad. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus but utter words of sober truth. He's giving him the word, absolute truth of God's word. And he says, For the king, that is Agrippa, knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, since this has not been done in a corner. It's been for all to see. He knows about this. People should know this. So Festus accused the apostle of being mad. And of course, the one who was accused of being mad ultimately is the person of Jesus Christ. Was he accused of being mad? Crazy? Mark 3.21 He 
He was mad. It's crazy. The things that he was doing. Verse 20, 320. And he came home. He'd been doing some amazing ministry. Came home. The crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. They heard about him, all the things that he was doing. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, He has lost his senses. Even his own family, brothers, mother, thought he was going crazy. Lost his senses. All the people are out and about town there. What is going on here? It happens all throughout the ages. People who are committed to Christ don't know what truth is. And so, therefore, they look at people who stand for truth, can't understand them, and they call them crazy and all other kind of terms. The Pope said to Luther he ought to be in Bedlam. The Wesleys, when they came on the scene, were charged with madness. They were called fools and madmen. For we are beside ourselves. It's a madness. If it's a madness, then it's a madness for God, Paul says. Do you like that? For if we are beside ourselves, okay, if it is, it's for God. It's all about Him. It's for Him. And with Him, it's okay. It's all right. We're sold out. Totally committed. We are completely committed to Christ. No matter what the world thinks, no matter what my family thinks, what do we do? Whatever we are going to do, we're going to do for Him, right? It may appear crazy. It may appear insane, but it's for God. But if some people take you as being of sound mind, He says, then we're, we're doing it for you. We're doing it for you, the Corinthian church. There's some of you there that think of me of being sound mind, Paul says. Sophroneo. You've you've heard of sophomore, and so means saved or delivered, something along that lines, or even sober. Froneo is dealing with a mind thinking, sober-minded, not drunk kind of thinking, but sober thinking. So he says, if we're beside ourselves, if we're if you if, if it's because of the craziness and the madness, it's for God. But occasionally there are some people seeing this as being of sound mind, intelligent, interested in holiness, things of truth and righteousness. These things are the word of God, this truth. It's for God's sakes, and it's all also for the Corinthians' sakes. He was full of passion because he stood for truth. The truth was critical here as he witnessed to the Corinthians. It's absolutely necessary. So he's very sober-minded as he delivered the gospel. Full of passion, wasn't he? Kind of lets you in on the person of Christ, doesn't it? Or uh, person of Paul here, in a sense as he is committed to Christ. 
because the next phrase is the most driving that we can have here as far as motivations. This, as we started earlier in our introduction, what are you motivated by? On this section of the last two verses, this love of Christ is what we should be supremely motivated by. And you're going to get to the heart of the gospel right here. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Supreme motivation, isn't it? And he starts off, verse 14, with that three-letter word, for. This introduces the very explanation of his madness. Okay, if I'm mad, here is why I'm mad. I'm mad about Christ. Right? For, you know, it was, what Christ did, it was for our benefit. So it leads to a very basic fundamental statement of Christian doctrine. Supreme importance here. A love of Christ constrains us, controls us. One died. One died for all. The love of Christ controls us. The highest motive, the noblest motive, the love of Christ that controls us. I want you to think just for a moment about what Paul thought of Christ's love for himself, Paul, and all believers. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Who's going to do it? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord how can you not say amen? Praise God. Yes. That's how chapter 8 ends. It's overwhelming, isn't it? It's beautiful. Christ and his love for us. That's why we do what we do. The only thing is, I think we need to be reminded of that frequently. I think we forget that. The love of Christ. What a motive. Look at Galatians 2.20. It's the next book over. (laughs) 
I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This gospel is for you. It's for you. We started off with the fear of God and we saw that that kind of fear is actually being in awe and and in reverence and realizing how holy He is. What a great thing that is. And then it comes to this point about the love of Christ. It's all about the whole attributes of God, whether it be His holiness, whether it be His love, His mercy, grace. It's all for us. It's good. We're here to proclaim that this morning. Take great comfort in it. This is how you approach life. This is how you approach everything in your life. Ephesians three, nineteen. What a blessing it is to hear this kind of news. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Paul was very concerned that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ, would have the knowledge of Him to be filled with who He is, to know Him in every aspect. So you have to realize, although Paul taught great doctrine, the doctrine of love is very important. Very important to him. It's what drives him. Because he says this. For the love of Christ controls us. What's, what's the idea there? What's, what's the meaning? Another translation might be constrains us. Controls us. Constrains us. To some that might be rather offensive. God's in control. I can't think of a better comforting thought than a sovereign God who's in control and he's even in control of my life his love controls me the word there is suneco it means pressure that creates an action or it's control literally it means to hold together to press together It's just as if his strong hands are gripping us by a gentle force to move us in the right direction. That's what he's been doing from day one, hasn't it? Controls us. Isn't that very comforting to you? We need to hear this. It's like this. I'm on a road, driving down the road. I can't veer left, I can't veer right, nor can I retreat. He keeps me heading on. Work of Christ in me. I'm pushed forward by the transforming power of knowing that Jesus Christ loves me. That's our motivation. 
He's defending his integrity here because he's compelled by the love of Christ. It is not something that he's boastful about, but he's compelled by the love that Christ has for him. And it's true of every believer there in Corinth and right here today. We proclaim that. Are we motivated to holiness and faithfulness? Not because we are to do things and, okay, grit our teeth and do it. No, we're motivated by the fact that this is good. This is coming from God, whatever we do. And whatever He wants us to do, this obedience is not a matter of my own works and I'll do it. But it's understanding how Christ loves us. And when we understand that, how else can we not praise Him and live for Him? Charles Hodge wrote a paragraph on this, and I hope it's okay if I read this. I think it's very helpful. A Christian is one who recognizes Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, as God manifested in the flesh, loving us and dying for our redemption, and who is so affected by a sense of the love of this incarnate God is as to be constrained to make the will of Christ the rule of his obedience and the glory of Christ, the great end for which he lives. The man who does this perfectly is a perfect Christian. The man who does it imperfectly, yet with a sincere desire to be entirely devoted to Christ, is a sincere Christian. We may not be perfect, but we're sincere, right? We do want to follow Him. On the other hand, Hodge goes on and says, the man who lives for himself lives for his family, lives for science, lives for the world, lives for mankind, or whatever is not a Christian. So Hodge says the great question is, what that we concentrate our whole lives on Him. What constitution, what is it that makes a Christian? Well, the answer is that it's being so constrained by a sense of the love of our divine Lord that we concentrate our whole lives on Him. So says Charles Hodge. I think that was well said. He, his love is so constraining that we want to make every part of our lives about Him. We, uh, of course, we sang that song, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. At the impulse of Thy love. Do you catch that? There's a purpose of why that song was sung this morning. Not only... Is he talking about hands? Talks about feet going, the money, silver and gold, my will, everything that we're about. And we realize it's to be consecrated for him, to him, all about him. So that's quite the constraint, isn't it? You might have been putting the lyrics up there, Zach. Somebody was helping me. Yeah, help me point out. I should have stayed on a little bit more, but 
Um, if you want to put that up there and they want to look at that, that's fine too as I, as I move on with it because that's really kind of what happens in our life. Are we motivated to holiness because Christ loves us? That's what we want. Don't be motivated by some other way. I want to look good. I want to feel good about this. No, it's being motivated by the very love of Christ. Sometimes I may not speak enough about the love of Christ. I just take it for granted. can't do that, can I? I was constrained today to, to hit on the love of Christ because it's there. I can't avoid it, can I? I love the fact that He loves me. Sometimes I need to be reminded. So therefore I remind you. The love that He has, it's, it's sovereign, it's free, it's spontaneous, it's ex- exercised on the part of God. Even long before we were ever here, the love of Christ, it's immeasurable. His love is infinite. Infinite, think about it. Our love tends to stop at a certain point. Okay, I did this, I did this, I did that. I can't do anymore. And that can be true. His love is infinite. Inconceivable, we read in a passage. Can't even know what all that means. And now we get into the beauty of this grand doctrine. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. He died. One died for all. Christ died for all. And there it is. That's biblical. We even had it in a song this morning, and when you hear it constantly, and it is, and you'll see it in other passages in Timothy, and we'll we'll try to explain that, try to go as far as we can with that, and say, well, he died for all, okay? And but what what does all mean? And that's that's a, probably a word that is discussed all throughout the the church of our day. And we'll try to get into that as we move on here. The, the word here, one died for all, F-O-R. Hooper is the word. It means to substitute. It means to be on the behalf of. It means to be in the place of. To take the place. To substitute for somebody else, to take the place of somebody. Debbie used to be a substitute teacher. She's now a regular teacher. But used to, she would go in the place of another teacher. She was known as a substitute teacher. Did what the other teacher was supposed to do, at least get the the basic uh, work done there for them. So she took the place of that. She substituted there. Christ is our substitute. One died for all. Hooper Pantone. On behalf of all. In the place of all. As a substitute for all. It's substitutionary death. To substitute. To take our place. Jesus dying in the place of all. 
I keep saying all because keep that ringing because I know you're thinking, what's he going to do with this one? I'm getting kind of (laughs) nervous. Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Do you guys remember singing that song this morning? Do you take note of those words that we sing? We really try hard to try to get everything theologically sound. Some of them fit right in with the text today, maybe not all of them. But we're trying that. Sometimes we may, may miss it a little bit. We don't want to miss it. We, we test those out. But music, words put to music that praises God is important, isn't it? Wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. That's four. F-O-R. All over the New Testament. That was in Isaiah 53. All over the New Testament you will see this. He became sin for us. There used to be a t-shirt out that read like this. This blood's for you. Catchy. But it is true, isn't it? The blood is for you. His death is for you. He died for us. We understand that. He took the curse for us. And like I said, we're, we're kind of at the end of what would be like a hymn that gets to its final refrain. It comes out just blowing with tremendous thoughts. And, of course, we're heading to uh, being a new creature. We'll be talking about that next week. We'll be talking about reconciliation. And if you look in verse 21, the very last verse, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He never sinned. But he took on our sin in our behalf as our substitute in our place. We should have been there. He took our place so that we could have sin taken away, expiated, so that we become the righteousness of God. In Christ, in Him. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Here we go. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Sin fell on Him. Verse 11 and 12. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one. My servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many, the many, and interceded for the transgressors. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is a representative substitute. He represented you. The substitute. One died for all. This is atonement. This is the atonement. This is the heart of the gospel. I'm going to give you some words that deal with the atonement that help define it. It's penal. It's vicarious. It's substitutionary. It's propitiatory. It's expiatory. It's sacrificial. If you don't believe that, you don't believe the gospel. You don't believe Christ. You don't love him. You don't love his word. That's what he did. You can say, well, I don't know. I didn't know all those words. That mean, does that make me not a Christian? No. <laughs> don't want to scare you there. What do you mean penal? Well, that's penalty. It was dealing with a penalty. That being death. That was due to us. See, he didn't sin. He didn't really have the penalty, but he took that penalty on. It was a penal atonement. That is highly offensive to many Christians today. They said it wasn't that he had to take on punishment. It's more or less an example. It's vicarious in that, you ever heard of a vicar? A vicar takes the place of. That's substitutionary. That's where we get on the next word, substitutionary. Taking our place, we've talked about that. Propitiatory means it satisfied the justice and the wrath of God. God was pleased, and it says in Isaiah 53, He was pleased to crush His Son. That is rather disturbing to many people too. It's in the Scripture. He was pleased because how else are we going to be saved unless He is crushed, unless He dies for us, right? So it should be a good thing. That's the only way we get our sins taken away. And it's expiatory in that our sins are taken away. Also righteousness is put on us. It's sacrificial in that He gave Himself up. Representative and mediatorial Christ suffered the punishment of our sins. He died, and it said in Corinthians here that one died for all, and we'll come back to that. Therefore, all died. Not we're dead. They died. The punishment of our sins, we died. He, he suffered the punishment of our sins and his death. It's so plain, isn't it? We also somehow died with him. It's difficult to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, though, would be our substitute. He says the consequences of this is, therefore, all died. He died, all died, we died. Not we're dead, but died. What does it mean when we say Christ is our substitute? What do we mean by that? He's our substitute. He discharged my penal obligation to God. It's been done away with. He paid the penalty. All to Him I owe. Jesus paid it all. Do you believe that? If He paid it all, the next logical thought is, okay, well then my sins are taken care of. Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. It was done. Well, he, he did it for all. 
penal obligation. It's been taken care of, folks. Well, what about this for all then? He died for all. He paid the penalty for every person on earth. Is that the case? Did he die for Hitler? Then his sins are paid. He's in heaven. Did Stalin... Is, is, were we talking about somebody like him? How about Castro? He died physically here. Did Jesus die for him? Who is the all? One died for all. Well, he died for the whole world, people will say. Really? If he died for the whole world, what are we doing here? Maybe learn more about Christ, but why would you, you don't even have to be saved. You don't have to be a Christian. Very few are Christian anyway. And if he died for Hitler, Hitler's going to be there. He died for everybody. All are, all the sins are paid for. It brings in quite a conundrum, doesn't it? One died for all. He immediately defines what he means here right in this text. Therefore, all died. Who are the all for whom the one died? Who are they? Who are the ones that, as he said, he died for all? Who are they? They're the ones who died. The one died for all, therefore. Therefore, the all die. It has that word that we'd be familiar with, the the, the all. You getting that? The all. Who are the all? In Isaiah 53, he called it the many. The many. The all. Um, somebody can say, hey, you should have been there. Everybody was there. All were there. Does that mean everybody in Jeff City? Who's the all there? You have to qualify the all. Is it the whole world with everybody who's ever been born? So he defines it here. It's the ones who died, therefore all die. The all for whom Christ died. Is that, is that making sense there? The ones who died in the death of Christ. The ones who he came for. We don't want to say that, um, okay, if, I don't think any Christian would say everybody is going to heaven, whether you're a Christian or not. You can't be a Christian and believe that. Christ is the only way, and he said that. That's to make him a liar. Not all are going to heaven, are they? Not all are believers in Christ. One died for all believers. Therefore, all believers died. And here's the conundrum. It's either a universal salvation and that he paid the sins for every person on the earth that's ever been born that's universal atonement and there are many outside Christianity that believe that and some who claim to be Christians believe that we can't believe that we, we cannot even think that because what's the idea of hell and people who don't believe why do, we, why do we want people to believe right and we know that there is a repercussion and we don't know who they are we don't know who they all are that's why we give the gospel to anybody. If it's a universal salvation, we got a problem. Why does the scripture say all then? One died for all. If it says one died for all as their substitute, discharged their penal obligation to God, 
then everyone goes free? Can't be. Whoever has had his penal obligations satisfied. The consequences for this doctrine, the doctrine of substitution for the very design of this atonement is momentous. If Christ discharged, done away with my penal obligations to God, I owe nothing. Jesus paid it all. The cross was decisive for my salvation. The cross is where it happened. This is the heart of the gospel. And it guarantees that I should be brought to faith and through faith to eternal life. It's a guarantee. It's been paid. If we affirm penal substitution, which is what has been taught in the church, should be continued to taught, but it's kind of not anymore. The penal substitution is effective. It's an effective act, a saving act of God. Then you must either believe in universal atonement, meaning everybody without exception, and that's not biblical, or you have to believe in that it's restricted in the scope of substitution. And say the all means all believers. Making it a substitution for some, but not every person who has ever lived. If we attempt to affirm substitution for all, but then we have some die in their sins, we have to give up that example. Augustus, top lady. Payment God cannot twice demand. Look at some of the great hymn writers, theologically sound. That's saying God can't demand the payment from Christ and then later on demand the payment from you. That's double indemnity. That's double jeopardy. We have a major problem if that be the case. We have to see this as the way that it's put. And any way you look at it, this is called then limited atonement. I don't prefer those words the best, but it fits in with the anacronym TULIP. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Predicular redemption is another one that may even sound better. He died for particular people. It's limited in in its efficacy, if you take an Arminian view, that he dies for everybody, but then Arminians limit it too because they don't say that everybody is going to heaven. They're not going to tell you Hitler's going to heaven. So they limit the effectiveness of it. It only goes so far. He did so much, but guess what? He didn't really pay it all. Now here's what you have to do. It's limited in its power. Or the way that we view it, it's limited in its extent as far as people are concerned. Uh, if we say that Christ died for every one who's ever been born and he tried to save everybody, but he didn't save everybody, he failed. He didn't accomplish what he was supposed to do at the cross. Do we have a sovereign God who accomplishes all of his purposes or some of his purposes? So we've got to remember that he believes here that Somebody might say, well, yeah, they believe in limited atonement. 
Well, the Armenians do too. They build a bridge, and it goes halfway across the river. But you have another half mile on this river, and the rest is up to that person. Or it is built all the way, but there are are only going to be certain ones who will cross that. Believers in a sovereign mercy and sovereign grace believe in a limited extent. He came to accomplish atonement for a particular people, and he has accomplished it. It's been done. It is finished. He accomplished it. John 17, if you're still trying to reason this out, I know it's very difficult. Jesus said a prayer. Jesus said a prayer the night before his death, one of the greatest prayers you'll ever read, and it was his prayer for us, for the disciples, for all believers. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood. And I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours. Yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. The ones whom you have given me. John 6 talks about the ones who were given to Christ. And we continue on in John 17, verse 20, it says, And I do not ask on behalf of these alone, the disciples, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And it is dealing with belief. Of course, where does belief come from? But it is dealing with belief. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The ones you have given, I want them to see your glory. All of Christ's prayers are answered. The great doctrine of this area of soteriology, this is called particular redemption. It's not about a potential death. The Arminian view is really saying this. He made it possible for people to be saved. The cross made it possible. They'll give that to you. But the other part is you have to do this part. We do believe. We do repent. We call sinners to repent. That's what he called us to do. But it wasn't a potential death. We didn't have a potential death. We died with him. And then that next verse in in Corinthians there. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. Because of his resurrection, we now live We died with Him, Romans 6 says. And then we come to life with Him. We're raised with Him. These are people who died, who now live. And they don't live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. And Christ accomplished everything that He had purposed from before the foundation of the world. That's how great God is. 
and you can say, what if I'm not one of those people? The point is, is that you don't even have to ask yourself that. If God is calling you, and we've had this word delivered to you this morning, and he's saying, trust in me. Place your trust in me. Confess your sins. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You can be a believer right now. And that's the message we have for everybody out there. So what's the conclusion? It's in this 15. They who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Huh? I can't live for myself? I'm not myself. I'm in Christ, Galatians 2.20 says. I can't live for myself. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. This is why he was so motivated. The work has been done all the way for the foundation of the world, at the cross, and then time and space where you existed and you placed your trust in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. You were converted. You were regenerated as Jesus talked about to Nicodemus. You must be born again. It's supernatural. You can't do it. This is the thing that should motivate us to pursue holiness the love of Christ. Is that overwhelming? These are deep truths of Christ. Very, very deep. Some of these you don't even address the unbeliever with because they can't understand it. But these truths you take and revel in them. Then you'll be fearing God, honoring God, glorifying Him. That is why we exist. What a plan. What a plan, God. Let's pray. Father, this is overwhelming. And you've made us overwhelmingly conquer, as Romans 8 says. We have no fear but the fear of you. We are in awe of you. These precious truths, Lord, you've given to us. Help us to concentrate on the love of Christ that constrains us for he has brought us to this point in our life right here today. He has done that, and it's out of his great love. Thank you for these people, and as we continue in our worship of you, Lord, reflecting upon this sacrifice that you did, that it would give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we thank you once again for joining us. We pray that this message would serve to edify you. And we say goodbye until next time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make His face shine upon you. Until next time.